This is Beth Bruno, and you're listening to the Fierce and Lovely Podcast. On this podcast, I amplify the feminine voice and curate feminine glory so that you, my listener, find your own fierce and lovely story. It has become somewhat of a sacred journey for me to uncover the stories of women from around the world throughout time and present day. The more fierce and lovely women I explore, the more I fall in love with the one in whose image we reflect. My hope is that in this space, you embrace your own beautifully ordinary life as the majority story most of us are living. Hello and welcome back to the Fierce and Lovely Podcast. This is Beth Bruno and each week I have a woman on that I get to talk with who is living a fierce and lovely life in some way or another. I get to amplify their voices and curate their stories so that you hopefully find your own fierce and lovely story. I've now started to include reflection questions in the show notes about each conversation so that you can engage more with yourself or with the Lord or with some of girlfriends in your life. So make sure that you check out those questions in the show notes. And if you are not yet following me in the various places where you can, go to bethbruno.org forward slash freebies and you can sign up to receive not only access to that curated resource library that I've created for you, but you can stay up to date on all the things fierce and lovely. I send out a monthly email to my subscribers. You can also follow me on social media. I'm on Instagram at Beth H. Bruno and at Fierce Lovely, and you can find me at Facebook as well. I have given up on Twitter, and um, really, I'm, I love to hang out on Instagram. I just love the, the pictures and the inspiration there. So you can find me there and follow along. Today's guest is Gina Thomas. And she is the author of the newly released book, Separated by the Border, A Birth Mother, A Foster Mother, and A Migrant Child's 3,000-Mile Journey. And just like so many of my guests, while Gina's story is unique to her, um, the themes in it, I think, are applicable to all. And I, even today, am in a place where I just needed to hear some of her perspective on how to deal with discouraging seasons of life um, when we are calling out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think all of us can relate to to walking um, through periods like that in our life. And so even though Gina's story um, might not be relatable to all of our lives, her thoughts and her perspective on faith are certainly applicable. We dive into the topic of immigration and talk a little bit more about what is going on in Central America. And um, I learned a lot, as I'm sure you will as well. So here's my conversation. Conversation with Gina. Hey, Gina, welcome to the Fierce and Lovely podcast. Thanks, Beth. It's so great to be here. Well, Gina, can we start off by hearing a little bit about you, just kind of where you are right now and what occupies your days? Yeah. So I live in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and I've lived here for a little over a year now. Um, I have a four-year-old and an eight-year-old and have been married to my husband for 
uh, 11 years. Um, we moved to Tennessee um, for a job for me. So I work at a nonprofit that works with um, alongside churches to help them with holistic development practices and principles um, in their particular region, whether that's in the U.S. or abroad. Um, so it's been a really great kind of um, professional change for me and that uh, I get to actually use um, some of my master's degree education um, in, in, in international development um, alongside my writing skills, which is just, yeah, it's just a great connection for me. So Gina, is that the Chalmers Institute? It is, yes, the Chalmers Center. Chalmers, Chalmers Center. And what is your particular role in all of that? What do you do for them? Um, I do curriculum development. So um, a lot of just kind of different types of writing within curriculum. And that is what the churches are using when they have, you know, partnerships with different development work overseas. Is that yes. for U.S. So, churches? So it's it's both. Um, in the U.S., we have um, a couple of different curriculum. One is faith and finances. Another is work life. Um, and that's really um, faith and finances is probably our biggest one. Um, but really, it um, is a financial education that uh, really honors the dignity and humanity of every learner and um, and really says that all of the learners have experience and that they bring to the table. And so everyone can learn from each other rather than it being kind of like a, um, you know, a teacher on a pedestal kind of thing. Um, and then overseas, we have... Uh, savings group material. So we work um, with several different organizations um, for what um, some people will, will consider village savings and loans groups, um, but but ours is a little bit different than, than that particular curriculum in that it um, integrates biblical um, principles and um, really tries, again, to, to honor the dignity of every, every person. So mm-hmm. that sounds so rewarding and like such a great combination of your all of your experience. Cause I've I read that you had lived overseas and had done missions and you're a writer and you're like you said, your master's in international development. What a great combination for you. Yeah, it really it's a wonderful fit. I feel I'm, very I'm, privileged. I'm a little jealous because I would love to be in something like that. I also, for any of my listeners, they know, like I kind of geek out when it comes to community development guests. I just, I also have a master's in international community oh, development, wow, okay. but haven't gotten to em- employ it a ton. Um, I've okay. used a lot of those principles locally to galvanize our community around human trafficking, but oh, wow. That's amazing. I, I still wish I was dipping my toes more into international work. So I just love talking to folks like you. I guess that's mm. the bottom line mm-hmm. um, and feel just a little jealous. So <laughs> thanks for telling us a little bit more about your your job and, and where you are. I also just have to say real quickly, I lived in Chattanooga for a little bit on top of Signal Mountain. What? Really? Yes. Um, And I just, I just remember, yeah, the drive, like having (laughs) to go up and down that mountain to get anywhere and do anything. Um, Do you live on top of any of the mountains? There's quite a few, aren't there? Lookout Mountain. Yeah, there are. We, I actually don't, I don't live on top of any of them, but my job is um, on Lookout. And so, yeah, it's quite a drive to get from my house to work. So I get to listen to a lot of audio books. Yes. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny because, I mean, now I'm in the Rocky Mountains. And when we talk about mountains, I mean, that's my reference point. The little the hills in, in Chattanooga are not really mountains, but those roads are crazy nonetheless. They they're, are. They're switchbacks and windy. Yes. And, um, they're not that going up that steep of elevation, but they're still crazy roads. That's That was my memory. Of yes, Chattanooga. your memory is absolutely correct. When I first came to work here, I was like, I don't know if I can do this driving up this mountain. <laughs> uh, but you're right. It's a hill in comparison to where you are at. So Yes. Yes. Oh, okay. Just had to throw that little connection out there. So Gina, we are, we're going to dive in. Um, to the just the theme of your most recent book, Separated by the Border. Um, and I want to just ask you about immigration. I, that's what we're going to be talking about today. And, you know, the, the story that you weave in your book is fascinating in and, in and of itself. And w- so we won't go into the particularities of that story. I want people to okay. go buy the book to read that story. Thank um, you. Mm-hmm. about becoming a, a foster mother of of a child that was separated um, from her mother and stepfather at the border. So just that's your context and your background and um, wanted my listeners to have that frame of reference. But let's talk about the state of things with immigration. And I would love, because of your international development frame of reference, um, can we talk a little bit about what is happening in Central America where this is all, I feel like that's where it starts. That's where the conversation should start is what is going on there. Mm-hmm. And what do you know in terms of community leaders, um, local leaders there in Central America and kind of what they're thinking these days? What are they wanting? What do they think needs to happen in order to curb the the violence and stop the flow of of migrants. Do you know any some of that of what's going on there in in their minds? Yeah, um so I want to preface all of this by saying that I um you know, we just talked about my work and what I do and so I am not um an immigration expert and I just want to make sure that people understand that cuz um there's a lot that that I know just from my personal situation but there's a ton that I don't know. Um, And I also want to make sure that I um, let people know that I am also not speaking from a Latina perspective. So I am um, a white American woman and, um, and my perspective is my own. And, um, and I, I hope and pray that people will, um, will reach out and, and look for the Latino uh, experience and perspective um, specifically on this topic, because it really does affect um, their lives in, in a way that it doesn't affect mine because of my, my white privilege. Um, So, yeah, um, you know, there's a lot happening right now um, and, and has been happening for a long time. And I think uh, some of the biggest push factors for immigration in general, um, specifically in what's called the Northern Triangle, which is um, Nicaragua, or sorry, um, El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala, um, is that there is quite a bit of, of poverty and quite a bit of gang activity that's, that's currently going on. Um, there's also quite a bit of femicide. And so a lot of domestic violence um, that's happening in those particular countries. And, um, and that is having, um, a, a quite an effect on, you know, younger people trying to figure out if, um, if this is what 
they're going to live in and this is what they're going to do. And then it's also affecting a lot of moms and families. Um, I think it was back in 2014 or so when there was a giant influx of, um, of really like teenage men who had come to the States. And then uh, really in the past year or two, maybe three years, it's been a lot more families that are coming um, at, at the border. And so, um, yeah, trying to really understand what those push factors are. In some situations, there are um, gangs that are threatening the lives of the teens. And so they decide, well, the best thing for me to do is to, to leave and to leave by myself. And so I know some people who um, their children have fled and they didn't know that they fled until after um, the child arrives, uh, whether it's in Mexico or in the United States. Um, and some of that is due to the threats that they get. And the threats might say something like, uh, if you don't join our gang, then we will kill your family. Um, and so there's a lot of that happening. And I don't want to, um, I don't want to take away from the fact that there is some really good and amazing work that's already happening. Um, in, in my context, I know Honduras better than I know the other countries. And so, um, I know that there are some really wonderful Christians in Honduras who are do- doing some very, very good um, and needed work and have been for a very long time. Um, and there's also some really just beautiful aspects of life that certainly exist there. And so I just want to try really hard not to kind of give into a, um, a mentality that says there's only bad happening. Um But I also want to talk a little bit about how, um, you know, the United States in our multinational corporations, um, we have certainly had a hand in in why this is happening, Um, not only with our corporations, but also with our involvement in different um, coups politically. And so I think it's really important for us uh, as Christians um, in the United States to recognize that, that we are... Um, and have had influence into why this scenario is currently happening. And part of that is because um, we have created situations in which um, poverty is easier. So I I give an example in the book of um, the United Fruit Company, um, which has gone under several different names, um, Chiquita Banana, United Fruit, and there's a couple others. Um, But they, at one point in time, were offering um, houses to their workers. And that sounds like a really great idea, but now the house is tied to the worker's job. And so if a worker leaves the job, maybe due to um, difficult situations or um, workers' rights or anything like that, then they have now lost not only their job, but also their house. Um, And so situations like that in which it sounds like a good idea and it seems like it's helpful and it's promising, but it's also a way for capitalism to become very colonialistic. And I think we really do need to wrestle with how um, our greed for money um, has influenced what's happening currently. Hmm. That's really, uh, yeah, I hadn't really thought about that. And so that is what, that's fueling some of the poverty, um, is, and I'm sure that that lends itself to violence as well. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about the the rise of gang activity and gang violence and help us understand that context in case it's different from the context here in the States that we might have or think about when it comes to gangs? 
Um, what I can talk about is my own experience with gangs in Mexico. This is not something that I talk about in the book, but, um, but I don't know a whole lot at, um, beyond what I've read about gang activity. Um, and you know, the, the bits that I told you about friends who have had children who have left, but, um, I would say that, that if people really do want to know a lot more about that, um, Sonia Nazario is a wonderful writer. She's written a book, Enrique's Journey, and she just has recently put out some more articles in the New York Times um, that really talks to, she's gone undercover in Honduras and, and, um, and really given light um, to what's happening currently. Um, there's a lot of gang situations uh, that are... Um, intertwined with education system, with the health system, um, specifically in Honduras with quite a bit. And so I, w- I would say if you are interested in learning more about that to, to read, read some of her work. Um, for me, when we lived in Mexico, um, we had, we were living in Northern Mexico and, um, there was quite a bit of gang activity that happened, uh, nearby where we lived in one particular instance where, um, we had a phone call, we were running a coffee shop ministry and we had a phone call from someone who said, who threatened us to give them money or else they would, um, I can't remember what the threat was, if it was on our lives or our property, I'm not sure. But, um, these kinds of things were, were pretty regular and pretty normal. Uh, happening there where we were. And um, some of it stemmed from actual gang activity. So there are different, you know, major gangs that were in the area. Um, But also some of it stemmed from um, delinquent crime in which, um, you know, people who aren't necessarily organized understand that there's organizational crime happening. And so they can make phone calls and um, threats um, without really any power behind those threats because, um, because the scare is so big and so real. Um, and so I think, you know, there's a lot, uh, a lot of that, that, that is happening and does happen. And, um, in Mexico in particular, there were certain presidents that we were, well, while we were living there, we lived there for four and a half years, certain presidents that, uh, kind of just gave into those threats and others that tried to do things about it. And, um, one way or another, it, has made, had made life difficult, um, for civilians in general. And I think, uh, we all kind of lived under a fear of what could happen. Um, there was a point in time where we were told by others that we should, we should get out of Mexico, but we didn't feel like we were ready to, or needed to, or wanted to leave. And so, um, you know, I think that, uh, that communal fear is pretty big and can cause, um, you know, you to do things in survival mode that maybe you wouldn't have decided to do. So the threat to leave is is real. And, um, and it just depends on the situation and the family and what resources they have, um, as far as whether or not they can make, um, you know, a a well-informed and, um, good decision on whether to stay or to leave. And so I think that's one of the one of the big things and, and kind of getting back into the topic of the book. Um, one of the things that really surprised me and makes me very sad uh, when I visit Honduras, I hear a lot about how families are already separated and how separated families is, is pretty normal. Um, and so I've met a lot of people and had quite a few friends who have family members who are in the States or um, 
had lived in the States for a while and maybe got deported and came back. And so uh, the family breakdown is pretty big. There was one family that I know who, um, a woman who's about my age, her dad left when she was, um, I think she was 10 and came back when she was 20. And so, um, you know, for a good majority of her adolescence, she didn't know her dad um, face to face. And so, you know, when you, when you come back into that environment and you haven't been around your child, but you still have the same rights as a, as a father does and the same identity, right. It's, it's challenging to suddenly become a father again, um, or to, to have a father again. Um, and so she really has a, a huge heart for children whose parents are not present. Um, and unfortunately that, that is becoming more and more the norm. Mm. Um, every time I visit there. So, Mm. well, Gina, I really respect your sensitivity to continue to say, this is all I, this is what I know. This is my experience and what, what you're not. Um, I really honor that and want to honor that. I know I keep pushing into asking you things that perhaps you don't have a lot of firsthand experience with, but, um, I love that just that last uh, story of one particular person's heart and commitment to do something about that. And that's kind of where I was leading with the initial question of, so so what are community members and local leaders and, and Christians um, already doing? Because we know that God is already at work in those countries. He's already, he's always been there and he's working through his people. And we do tend to focus on all that is going wrong um, and we focus on the problem, but I know that there are amazing things happening um, in country. So any other stories that you're aware of, of in line with that? Yeah. So um, there's an organization that I kind of follow from a distance called the Association for a More Just Society. Um, they're in the United States and then they're also in Honduras and they uh, are a Christian organization and really strive hard to um, to work and, and kind of push against um, some of this, um, the gang activity, the, the migration, uh, the poverty. Um, and, you know, and, and it comes at a cost. Um, one person that I was talking to recently that, that knows this organization very well and used to work for them. Um, had said that, you know, the person who runs it has had a lot of threats on their life. And that, that is a difficult um, cross to bury to, to carry. Um, and so um, I, I know also of churches who are working really hard with, um, with youth and with um, adults to, you know, again, where my organization, um, we work with savings groups. And so we know of some organizations who are doing different savings groups, um, through the local church. Um, and I've also heard of some churches who are respected by the gang members and leaders because, um, because they are working hard, um, to help the people. And so it really just depends on the context and the place. But, um, like you said, and I fully believe that God has always been, uh, and always is in the places that, you know, we, we kind of see them as dark quote unquote places. Um, but, but God is always there and his beauty is always moving in those places. And so uh, I think it's often, um, it's often our own blindness and maybe our own lenses that we're looking through that we think certain places specifically dark or darker than other places. Um, because as we all, uh, I think are becoming more and more aware in our own country that in the United States, it's not, 
it's not the land of the free and the home of the brave. Like we've, you know, kind of been alluded to for a long time. It, it, there's a lot of hurt and a lot of pain that's happening right here in our, in our own land. And so I think it's really, um, it's really important for us to recognize that, you know, when we point to other places and say, Oh, that's a dark place. I would never want to go there. Well, we live in a dark place too, but the light is always, always there, always has been. And, and God is moving. Mm-hmm. Amen. Gina, you write about, you know, one very specific mother daughter journey and its impact on you and your family. I'm wondering years later, um, how you've seen that impact to continue to play out, particularly in your mothering? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. Um, so I think the impact it has been um, most um, deep, I guess the, the deepest and strongest it's been, has been on my faith um, and certainly has impacted my my mothering as well. Um, so I'll do mothering. I'll address mothering first. I think that I am learning just the importance of being present. Um, I am not always very good at that. I, uh, I'm in my head a lot. And so, uh, when I arrive home from work, it's really easy for me to either be thinking about something or kind of contemplating things and not really staying present and engaged with the people right in front of me. Uh, specifically my children, or, um, or to kind of be thinking through all the different things I need to get done before, you know, everyone goes to bed. Um, And so one of the things that I feel like this particular story has reminded me is just how precious every moment is that we do get with our children and um, how important it is to kind of fight the urge, at least in my own personal life, the urge to um, stay in my head um, and really be more intentional about you know, turning the phone off and um, not worrying about the list of things to do, but to, to be present and to play with my kids and, you know, do a puzzle with my daughter when she wants to and um, talk to my son about, you know, the things that he's reading or um, the struggles that he's having. And um, just that that each and every moment of that really truly is a gift and um should not be taken for granted. And it's very easy for me to take it for granted. Um, in regards to my faith, I would say, um, I just recently listened to your podcast, uh, with a woman who talked about, um, the femininity of God. And I think, um, that really has been the biggest, uh, change in my faith journey is just really understanding the mother love of God and, um, kind of starting to be okay with seeing God in the feminine light. Um, that wasn't something that I grew up with. And so it feels a little bit heretical <laughs> to be honest. Um, so in the book, I, at the very end, I have a pronoun of she for, for God or her or something like that. And, uh, you know, even writing that, um, once was, uh, challenging and hard mm-hmm. and continues to be hard. Um, but I do believe that the Bible lays out very specific and beautiful examples of, of God as mother and um, just seeing this story unfold before me and understanding just how willing um, this mom was to, to basically go through hell uh, a second time to get her daughter back has just um, 
really blown my faith uh, into a new dimension that I never expected to even, you know, think through. Hmm. Um, on top of that, to understand a God who suffers is not necessarily new to my faith, um, because I think I've always um, I've always seen God as a God who suffers. But I think that the level that I see it at. Um, is completely different and and one that honestly I really struggle with and I talk about that in the book some how much I do struggle with that um, and how not just a God who suffers but a, a God who allows suffering um, so those are the ways that I think that it's mostly impacted um, my my faith and my walk with the Lord but um, you know, for someone who always wants to have the answers and wants to know what's next and doesn't like to sit in the gray areas of life. Um, this has been a maturing journey for me personally. Hmm. This is somewhat related, but that's, I think that's what I connected to in your book, just personally right now, feeling like I'm in a discouraging season hmm. and, you know, you write about, the tension of just sitting in something that's not changing quickly. And I mean, especially something like immigration and the heartache that so many uh, families are going through and and we're just not seeing a ton of movement or change. You talk about um, lamenting and long suffering. I just wanted to know, and this is personal because it's where I'm at, you know, for, for those of us who are, you know, of, of course, we're not going to be in the exact situation um, as this mother, Lupe, who is separated from her daughter. But we all face discouragement. We all face um, suffering. And, and like you said, our God, our God gets that and connects to that. What is one thing that you have been in the midst of that for yourself that has helped you just keep going? That's a great question. Um, I really do think it's the it's a relearning and reawakening to the story of Christ on the cross, um, and just really understanding that um, you know when when He cries out, "God, why have you forsaken me?" That you know. What, what kind of God is a God who cries out, why have you forsaken me to his father? Um, that's a very vulnerable and a real and difficult place to be in. Um, and it really is the comfort that I get from that is knowing that I imitate Christ when I do the same thing. Hmm. Because there is a lot, um, there's too much, there's too much pain and, and too much suffering in this world. And um, that pain goes very, very deep. And those wounds go very deep. And not only do we experience pain, but we inflict pain on other people. Um, and a lot of that uh, can be um, unintentional, but it's it's true. Um, as human beings, we are both the perpetuators of injustice and um, the victims. And so 
when we have a God who was not a perpetuator and only a victim, um, and we see that he can cry out from the depths of a place that is completely unjust for him to even be in, um, to cry out to God and say, I need you. (laughs) Don't forsake me. Um, the fact that we can imitate Christ is uh, its own discipline um, in those moments because the truth is we don't always get the right answers or we don't always get the answers that we want. Um, and sometimes those gray spaces last for years <laughs> or for the rest of our life. And uh, and there is no justice and there is no um turning around and no redemption that we see sometimes in some situations, um, for our whole lives. And so it is, it has to be a comfort to know that in that moment when the world was dark, um, that there was redemption in the very fact that he was leaning on his father and saying, I don't feel you right now. Hmm. I need you. Mm Hmm. Well, Gina, I feel like you've just described um, the intersection of fierce and lovely, (laughs) (laughs) Um, but I don't want to put words in your mouth. And so I want to kind of conclude with hearing um, if you have any thoughts um, around those two words as you see them play out either in your life or even in Lupe's life um, or in other women that that you walk with. Yeah, I am. I really love how, how you describe those words and um, fierce is coming alongside God against injustice or evil in the world. um, And lovely as joining God to bring forth life and beauty. Um, And I think of, I love just this, this concept of your podcast and how you're really highlighting that in women, because I think, you know, again, when I think about the mother love of God, um, when we can see God in that way and we can see God as um, a mother who protects her children. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. And also um, a, a mother who births that which is good and lovely and beautiful into the world um, is just a really beautiful idea um, of who God is and who God is specifically in women, I think. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, just the, the, um, warrior like God, right. Who, um, who is not going to let his children or her children, um, be, uh, subjected to injustice. Um, and yet who's also going to allow her children to, to grow up and to have agency and to show their own beauty in the ways that they, uniquely can, um, I think is, is hopefully what, um, I'm embodying mostly for my daughter. Um, that is what I hope. Mm, I love that. Gina, thanks so much for joining me today on the podcast. And I will be pointing everybody in the show notes to your new book separated by the border. And I wish you all the best. Thank you so much, Beth. I really appreciate it.